1: All right, you guys. Terry Wolverine, she's here right now. She is the founder of the Writers at Work, and she is the author of eleven books. You guys, put your hands together. Give her a really big warm, warm welcome, Terry Wolverine, Wolverton. I bet you get that off the
2: top. I feel like I'm back in grade school, Wolverine. So, um, I want to just thank you all for being here this evening and say how thrilled we are uh, from the Poets at Work to be sharing the evening with Mike Songson, F. Douglas Brown, and Hannah Dow. So um, we're going to be, be prepared to go on many journeys through this evening. Um, poets at Work is one of the workshops at Writers at Work, which is not very far away. Uh, over in Silver Lake and if you would like to know about our programs look for the big yellow flyer that's up at the front desk you can't miss it Uh, so there are seven of us reading this evening and it is my oh I know what I wanted to say Uh, skylight books Skylight Books is this amazing community institution, and it supports the community, and it supports local writers, and it can only do that if you support it as a bookstore. So tonight, you have a perfect excuse to buy books and make sure that this bookstore is still here next year when we all want to come together and celebrate National Poetry Month. So give it up. You don't have to go to Amazon. Come to Skylight. All right. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our first reader this evening,
3: Anne Pible. And I should probably buy some books and take them to another institution that um, I patronize. I'm a librarian. (laughs) Another uh, disappearing. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, This first poem I'm going to read is um, for all of those who have. fried online dating. It's called Men with Fish. (laughs) I shouldn't make fun of the Zoosk profile photos of trout-wielding, ZZ-top-bearded dudes looking for the one, but the semiotics of these pictures escape me. Is the fisherman appealing to the primordial feminine slick with mud? What is a shimmering, open-mouthed steelhead trying to tell me about this guy I haven't already made up in my head? Is there actually some seductive hook hidden in the murky lake of dating apps meant for women just like me? Then I realize I may fit into some category of middle-aged women photographing themselves in vintage silk, well-coiffed mannequins looking on. (laughs) And um, this next one is a, I guess, a memory fragment poem from a road trip I took when I was a child. Somewhere between Phoenix and Las Vegas, 1972. We called her the wing for her arms range of motion from the front passenger side of the pinto to the back seat where we sat. We'll never forget the road trip. When tired of our bickering, she grabbed my Barbie, yanked off the hot pink boot, and threw it out the window. Said, if you don't start, stop arguing, the rest of her is going out, too. We watched the day-glow shoe tumble across the highway, get tinier with distance, knew she meant it. <laughs> and lastly, um, my, my father and I have a special relationship. We can only talk about politics. Um, <laughs> He emails me every day, and he usually has some kind of little um, update or a little commentary on the news of the day. And he is not a Trump fan, just so you know. My father's State of the Union Address, a poem constructed from a year of emails. America is great again. Our bloated baby's superior charisma and gutless enablers heal the wounds of the mesmerized masses, testify against assaulted women and angry teenagers, ferret out the sick and poverty-stricken immigrants fleeing violence in Central America. Spanky is writing the script for all the homegrown mass killers, hardcore death to the US villains, Like Saint Paul falling off his ass in the bright light, citizens march lockstep with the draft dodger, misplaced bone in his foot, kiss his butt, blame Hillary's emails for pizza parlor child pornography. Our emperor, Buddy Vladimir, and the fool Republicans play at negotiating with the fat, crazy juvenile in North Korea. Retweet Dennis Rodman's wisdom. There are orange fingerprints on the doomsday switch. Our rogue nation skirt chaser has earned his Nobel booby prize. Thank you. Thank you. And it is my great pleasure to introduce Eric Howard.
4: Hi, thank you, Anne. I'd like to read from, uh, some poems from a book I'm working on, but I'm going to stop to mention that the book that I, haven't, I stopped working on a while ago is up there <laughs> for sale. It's called Taliban Beach Party. All right, the book I'm working on uh, features some angels, some curses, and some nonfiction about the Wiley family of the San Gabriel Valley. And the first poem addresses an angel. To Michael, come swing your sword like the sun. Wings shine brighter than mercy. Let me help you harvest, mow the valley empty. I'll say your name and free the spring to chamber another round. Make another nation's faces give the earth a last slap as backhoes dig your footprints in fields. Michael, come swing your sword, keep your word. Right. the next poem comes from my days as a legal case editor, which includes a case listing uh, various endangered species of California. In the shadows of the Adams, not because I have given you every herb bearing seed, every tree, the bristle cone and July gold and the many flowered Navarisha, but because you have forgotten your goodbyes to the yellow-legged frog of the southern mountain and the evening primrose of the Antioch dunes. You will fly away with the marbled merlet and great gray owl, and no limestone salamander will grant a stay pending further review. When the trees are dying one by one, you will be awakened by dreams of being late. Because the court had no notice that the jury's findings ignored the laws of physics, the government took the raisins because the broken window and bullet holes found in the squad car were caused by the ricocheting bullets fired from the officer's own guns, the Delhi Sands' flower-loving fly and Kern County Sphinx moth are leaving, and you shall return to the atoms that are slowly spinning away, casting spectral shadows like prison bars even on the stars and their right to remain as silent as desert road signs at night. Right. The next poem mentions Jeanie Wiley, who uh, was locked in a room during her childhood and thus um, didn't have many child experiences like most of us do. It's called Dragonfly. Dragon, the nymph who lived two years underwater, damsel who eats her prey alive, rattlewing Art Deco savior, patrolling for any midges drawn to my breath and sweat in Elysian Park when the police academy guns chorus like the noise of many waters actuary with 300 million years of experience 16 neurons better than fighter jets better than Hawks the best air to air killer with two fair weeks of iridescence to mate by let me ask if Jeannie never got to hear and see you if nobody told her not to be afraid you don't hurt people. What voice from above the firmament over your mute head circling over mine could promise swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Smoke from the Malibu fire boils in the west. Your lacquer will leave you when you die after a male holds you in air above the artificial pond you come from as you lay your eggs among the baby tears and Amazon swords. But as long as there's fresh water and mosquitoes, You shall live. All right, this last poem addresses uh, the patriarch of the Wiley family. Uh, He changed his name to Clark after his mother named him Pearl after herself. Gabriel curses Clark. For killing Dorothy and Robert, for beating John, and trying to kill Irene, and for what you did to Jeannie, and for all the hurt with which you ruled the house on Golden West, I am sent to tell you, Clark, that you are why your father was struck by lightning and your mother worked in a whorehouse. You're why that kid got probation for dragging her down the street with his pickup truck. Your crime is your son's drunkenness and poverty, your granddaughter on crack, sleeping under stars that commanded you to love even in pain, but you did not obey You worship steel and wheels and wheels. So remember, Clark, as you ache forever in the forest of the suicides, your mother's 38 you blew your brains out with, knowing that you don't count all those orphanages and foster homes where they called you Pearl. Strangers will own your house. Your mother's Cadillac will never take your family to the beach. You're the dog howling outside Jeannie's door. Burn like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest. Be the lead in the midst of the furnace. Know that the world saw you for what you are. Thank you very much, and it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Paula Rudnick.
5: Everybody here? Yes? Um, The election of 2016 uh, transformed me from a concerned citizen into a political activist. I joined a grassroots organization. And for the next two years, I drove up to Antelope Valley, past Magic Mountain, to talk to voters. This poem, House Calls, is uh, about three of those experiences. One, battleground. The picket fence was peeling, and the drought had won its argument with once green grass. I placed a please vote notice in the door jam, kissing cousin to the flyer from the Desert Vineyard Fellowship, competing suitors for the hearts and minds of absent souls. Crunched my way back to the sidewalk as an SUV pulled onto concrete, evicting a young woman and two dark-haired girls. The smaller girl had baby teeth, the older child breast buds. I asked the woman if she got her sample ballot. She sensed the question was a trick, said her husband was a citizen, and he did, hoping this would disappear me. But I stood my ground with gritted clipboard, aimed my stump speech at the almost teen, heir to this star-strangled banner, faded since my father's parents fled pogroms, to carve a brighter future out of deli meat and sweat. Your father can preserve this country with his vote, I prophesied, powerful as any millionaires if we all stand together for what's right. The little sister hopscotched up the driveway. The mother popped the trunk. Half bemused, half bludgeoned, the girl agreed to be my messenger, turned attention to the groceries as I logged household data in my app. Voter disposition. Undecided. Two, door to door. We squared off in our wife beaters, mine pleated over love handles, his tight across a growing paunch. He held his hose defiantly, spitting pastel rainbows at a patch of American dream. His house wasn't on my walk list, but I longed for human contact after so many folded flyers under so many no one home doors. I told him I was volunteering for someone who wanted to protect health care and the environment. He told me he was a Republican who believed in the Second Amendment, shifted his stream to the azaleas, barely missing my toes. I said my candidate was a gun owner, as was her father, a cop. He glowered ice, removed his gloves. If he decided he wanted to strangle me, would anyone hear me scream? His chest was broad and hairless, vitiligo flecked face worn and sun-baked under a flop of steel hair. In a starched white shirt in a west side bar, he was the kind of guy I would flirt with if I were single, if he were, if we happened to be seated next to each other drinking Pinot Noir. He shut the spigot, stared at my chest. I clutched the dog tags around my neck, said my father was an army officer who'd won a bronze star in Korea. He said he was a Vietnam veteran who never saw combat, just purified water. Still service to the country, I countered, like me here today. He studied his flip-flaps, mumbled he was a conservative. I handed him a flyer. His grip was firm. And what is it you think we should be trying to conserve, I asked, before heading down the walk. At a west side bar, drinking Pinot Noir, I probably would have gone home with him. Three, knock, knock. Knocking doors on dusty road, final block in Target Town to flip a red state blue, I called into the morning dark. A slender figure stirred behind a pockmarked screen, more barrier to shooting spree than bug-proof mesh, aimed an oblong clicker at a flickering wall. Marching bands fell silent as he ambled toward the light. His latte skin was tatted with entwining navy vines, pushpin through his tongue, yawn sparkled silver. Yes, he said he'd registered, and yes, he'd vote my way, and yes, he knew to mail it, but he took my blank form anyway because there was no charge, and the halftime show was dull, and I was older than his grandma standing out there in the heat. I moved on to my next address. He moved back to bed, one more stucco cell block till I was home with the 1%. It was high noon in a moonscape, Last shrunk spider crumpled by last sorry I missed you note in last sad dirt caked web. I could almost hear Leonard Cohen streaming through my Tesla Dolby dash when I spied a tattooed specter waiting for me at the curb. No dented grate between us now, I smiled with tightened jaw as he fished a low slung pocket and produced my filled out form. Thanks, I said, my breath returned. He nodded his reply. I was halfway to the freeway ramp before the tears arrived. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to introduce the next poet, Dylan Gailey.
6: Thank you, Paula. Thank you all for being here tonight in celebration of uh, April National Poetry Month. I'll be reading two poems this evening. The first poem is a poem in two parts. The first section is set in Africa in 1920, and Iguana has just been shot. The second part takes place in Los Angeles in the summer of 1965, and I have learned a new game. 1920, The Iguana. Like a pane cut from an old church window, colors like a heap of precious stones. Like the northern lights, the dying iguana's colors fade to gray. With a sigh of death, she exhales her soul. Her beauty ascends beyond my imagination. Why are we set upon taking lives of the wild and roaming unbroken beauties? Is it in my nature, I suppose, to collect, to own? I'm a fool. God made rocks on which iguanas could sleep, not an altar for the dead lizard's skin. There will be no bracelets to wear. I am too white. It was never my Africa. It was not my iguana to kill. 1965, the June bug. As a child, I wanted to fly, so I hunted June bugs. I lasso the leg of a June bug with a slipknot thread. Their winged casings of metallic blue and aquatic green. They were like mood rings, but I was in control. Was fun. Unlike the 1920 iguana, my June bug knew its fate as the noose tightened. Boredom soon set in and the game ended. Another June bug hurled off. That summer dozed away. Hunting season was over. It's September. I'm back to school the june bugs are all gone all gone the second poem i'm reading to you tonight is uh, i just killed a bug
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> i i ignored it the first time <laughs> poor bug Maybe uh, this uh, second poem uh, points to the clergy, and, uh, you know, recent, more than you know, recent, but uh, the clergy and their abuse of children. My name is Mary. I want to be a good girl with delicate little painted lips. Eyes round as an ebony moon. My hair kept tidy with blue barrettes. I want to be a pretty girl, dancing wildly over desert sands like Jesus, walking on water but hotter. I'll part a crowd on a red carpet like he parted the Red Sea. I want to get off my bruised knees, cut the bands of swallowed swallowed dogma emerge upright from the darkened streets. I'm supposed to meet with my maker. I wish I were a Catholic cathedral where children sleep in the palms of angels and Jesus leaps in a single bound from his cross made of cedar and pine. Tipping his crown of thorny spurge, he knows he holds the courage to snip the horns of demon priests. His salvation depends on it. I want to be Jesus's girl. Thank you. Please welcome Sharon Kundi.
7: The crowd. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, Thank you very much for being here. Um, So, I'm reading two poems tonight, and uh, the first one is drawn from my experience as a graduate TA at UC Irvine, and it is an apostrophe, which is a poem that is addressed to someone or an entity that is unaddressable. This person, unaddressable because not present, and um, a person I never met except through the effects he had on my office. So, it is called Questions for a Book Thief. What did you expect to find in my fifth floor office? Rented cell in a hive of grubby academic acolytes. It's only perk, the terrace view of the dusty tops of other academic buildings clumped like hungry mushrooms. Did your pulse spike when you uncovered the clipped envelopes in the drawer? And what did you feel when you found Shakespeare's sonnet 116, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments cut into ribbons? a trick I picked up for teaching sonnet structure, which you left scattered on the stained carpet like spent confetti. Why did you make the choices you made, taking one Norton anthology of poetry, but not the other? Why Hobamuck and not the Coquette, both controversial early American novels whose heroines end badly? Were you eager to read my admittedly brilliant margin notes? Did you haul them to the textbook buyer, his cash register stationed beneath the pop-up canopy outside the bookstore at the end of every academic quarter? Perhaps you used the proceeds to celebrate with a coffee from the adjacent Starbucks, one with a crown of foamed milk, and used the rest to buy a dose of some wonderful drug. I I prefer to think of you on the rocky creek bottom, pondering the Gilded Age's social grammar of decollete and tuckers digesting the metaphysics of reader response, floored by the rhetorical force of Tony Kushner's queer stagecraft as you burn page after page some damp January night for the comfort of a little light and heat. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the second and last poem I'm gonna be reading is um, about taking the train uh, from Chicago to Los Angeles, which I did this, um, this Christmas. And I wanted to put this um, material in conversation with a poem by Robert Frost called The Woodpile." Um, And if you're not familiar with this poem, you should go out and read it, because it's great. Um, But in the poem, the speaker is lost in the woods in the wintertime. And he's um, beset by this anxiety that he's not going to be able to find his way out of the woods. Um, But he tells himself, kind of the beautiful tension of the poem is that he tells himself it's going to be okay, And the poem is sort of animated animated by this sense of disavowal. And I wanted to um, kind of bring that feeling of disavowal into conversation with um, my sentiments about climate change. The poem is called um, Here or Somewhere Else, or The Grain Silo, and it starts with a short epigraph by Frost. The view was all in lines, straight up and down, in tall, slim trees, too much alike to mark or name a place by, so as to say for certain I was here or somewhere else. The Southwest Chief begins its run. High in our berths, we slide through solstice Illinois on snow scab-moted tracks. The ones who raised me lay behind alongside factory fields in rust rough opiate towns. The ones I'm raising here, two boys, as clean as new peeled corn. The worn out fields declined beneath a petro shroud that's nitro spiked, twinkled with zinc and phosphate, stubbled gold as sharp as knives and itched with grit. A half mile off, a clump of neon signs, sprouts like purgatory sunflowers, ubiquitous yellow M, Red, white, and blue escutcheons, hawking brands of gasoline. Though I'm not lost, no frost, I know exactly where I am. These tracks lead to the Golden West. I track junked cars, enough to pave the earth, stacked slabs of cracked cement, violet mounds of clinkers, heaps of tires. A pile of frost-furred railroad ties reclines behind a cinder-block bar called Ziggy's, succumbing to mushroom and lichen. Coven of Mephisto's, fat black tankers of crude gloat at the Faustian bargain they've wrought, their biggest yet. Deranged Stonehenge, three silos stand, meteorites jammed in clay, gone dark. Some few years back, a nearby town lost two teen boys inside such bins. 8,000 tons of corn the ruined prairie's load flowed out to a conveyor belt. One boy jumped in to loosen sticky clumps along the wall. What was it like to walk on that grain river? To feel the golden squelch, the close, rich breath of such abundant fuel. To feel the ankle tug and swirl, to slide inside consumption's smoldering gut. The second boy dove in to dig him free. He was engulfed. Consolidated grain and barge denied all liability. We lumber through a crossing, red-eyed, orange-striped gate falls closed. As day gives up, the barnyard lights grow bright and sinister, as clear as song. Back home at LAX, a thousand, thousand planes lift off above the sea, a thousand million sweat and burn on roads. We writhe inside a silo, high as Icarus. The sky has cracked, the sun's too much, the ankle swirl and tug. Train picks up speed. We fly past roads that spoke to some other nowhere. Dead end sign, the hue of winter corn. The dark that's coming. The dark that's here. And it is my pleasure to introduce Helen Yeoman Campbell.
8: Thank you, Sharon. Thank you all for being here. I've been feeling nostalgic because I was introduced to Writers at Work about eight years ago through their annual reading and workshop that they had here at Skylight. So I thought it would be fun, um, marking my seventh year anniversary, uh, to revisit the first poem that I had published after becoming a member. The poets that I refer to, I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, I refer to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Sylvia Plath, W.S. Merwin, who we lost recently, Arthur Rombeau, <coughs> William Shakespeare, and Walt Whitman, in that order. And this is called My Weekend with Friends. I spent the weekend with friends. Friday night, I sipped a fruity Merlot with Liz, thanked her for understanding my dreams, how easily they shift into nightmares, and how they, like black grapes, leave stains. Saturday, it rained. I walked with Sylvia through the gray day, neither of us expecting miracles. But upon seeing the way water cloaking the wings, glistens off the back of an ink-black rook. We rushed home, transformed to write. That evening, I studied the magic of quilting with Merlin. With needle and thread, we stitched our separate losses together. Sunday, sunlight shattered clouds, cracked them open like eggs. Heavy-lidded, I pressed through the sparkling blue-infused morning. Arthur expected me for breakfast, our new tradition. I choked back the rich cologne of lilies and lavender, the swollen odors of spring as they lifted through his apartment window. The lice had returned, and Artie's cheeks were still warm with salt. I longed to smooth his scalp, console him with kisses and crackle of white shells. Split his humiliation, share his shame. But I just wept. Afternoon, I visited Will, who was exploring metaphors for death with branches and birds. I asked him if he considered himself a thinker like Hamlet or a doer like Ophelia. He admitted it was futile to love either one, which, of course, made me love them more. At night, I met Walt by the shore, where we sat under his sagging half moon. I told him about the nightmares, the rook, the stitches, the clouds, the lice, and the metaphors. He spoke to me of the sea and the solitary bird he heard sobbing for its mate. I rested my head on his shoulder, weary but revived from the weekend's encounters. And together, listening, we waited for the song. I've been working on a series of sonnets inspired by um, various works of art that depict women reading. So this is called Portrait of Miss Helen Lindsay, no date, Oil on Canvas by Charles Edward Perugini. Bite her green book, untie her pink apron. Miss Lindsay seems bored by stories of Eve, her eyes mesmerized from thoughts deep within. Too grave for gardens. Too wise for puffed sleeves. More open than she, her book lies unclasped, revealing a shepherd tending his sheep. Or is it a minstrel making a pass at a hidden-from-view little Bo Peep? There are no words on the page for Helen to read. No reason for her to look down. Her eyes, the tale the painter is telling, A mystery written in oil, dark brown. What is she thinking? She's probably vexed. Charles, give her a book with some fucking text. (laughs) And uh, traditionally, I like to finish my time up here with a haiku. This year, I'm switching it up, and I'm doing a Korean form called the sijo. It is three lines like a haiku, but each line is a little bit longer, and there is a little bit of a turn at the end. This is called The Gift of Time. Time is but a bitter pill. We all are forced to swallow. It dissolves the marrow in our bones, leaves them brittle, hollow. It's time to make a wish. Extinguish another birthday candle. Thank you. And it's my great honor to present to you Terry Wolverton, the lady responsible for tonight's event. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Helen.
2: Um, I'm gonna be reading three poems And um, two of them are from my most recent chapbook, called Blue Hunger, which is up on the desk. This poem is a pantoum, transient. I've been driving for hours past nothing. I wonder if I've died and just don't know. Not even birds disrupt the white sky. No radio signal for miles. I wonder if I've died and just don't know. My fingers stiffened on the steering wheel. No radio signal for miles. To what music do the dead listen? Fingers stiffened on the steering wheel. I keep veering over the double yellow line. To what music do the dead listen? I have only old songs to sing. I keep veering over that double yellow line. At what point will I fall off the edge? I have only old songs to sing, songs of Jesus, songs of Indian maids. At what point did I fall off the edge? Faster I go, more the horizon recedes. Songs of Jesus, songs of Indian maids embedded in the wine of the tires. Faster I go, the more the horizon recedes. Odometer rolls to a line of zeros, embedded in the wine of the tires, the lonesome echo of the world. Odometer rolls to a line of zeros. Not even birds disrupt the white sky. Lonesome echoes through the world. I've been driving for hours past nothing. This poem is called New Museums. The museum of today is littered with burned carcasses. Legs, arms erupt in all directions. Couch potatoes pretend to look, but their eyes are occupied with the same blank stares, brains not agitated by each new attack. The guard remembers his ragged, prayers, howls his flat-voiced song. The Museum of Tomorrow contains a tree, stone remnant of something that grew in a neighborhood, maybe, a backyard. It contains morning and afternoon. Night was stolen by some motherfucker who was not caught. The guard is fascinated by the hole it leaves in his brain and heart. And my third poem is from the collection Ruin Porn, which was published at the end of 2017. The title uh, comes from the idea of a fortune cookie, but uh, the title is actually Wisdom Cookie. Have I fallen and spilled into this killing future, roof of the world torn away, body just an empty house where wind walks over rafters of bone? Creatures masquerading as people, lumps of flesh with broken mouths and no rhythm. We've made it to the end of consequences. Sit on a wedge of destiny never foretold. Starved for sugar, we cannot appreciate the sound of trees. Honeybees are holy But we've forgotten their fate out on this unintended highway. You reveal the law of rage as a spiritual teaching. I ignore all clues, try to save nothing. The debris of knowledge means little now, kept as it is inside the smashed surf shops. Still, a person will pretend to drown when summer does not come full-on. Thank you.
1: Right. that was amazing. That was fantastic. All right, you guys, so now we're gonna celebrate our three authors who are here tonight, and they're each going to read for us, and then afterward, All three will come back up, and we'll do a short Q&A. So we'll keep moving right along right now, you guys. Put your hands together for Douglas Brown, reading from ICON.
0: Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Good. I'm kind of the bridge between Terry's class and the joy that you're going to see from Mike and Hannah. So... um, You probably heard this little baby in the back. You're like, who brings a baby to a poetry reading? That's my kid. She's one years old, and she's been to, I think this is like 18 or 19 poetry readings. She went to AWP last week. She survived. She's going back. Um, But this is about my other daughter, Olivia, and this is a bop. And a bop is a poem that's in three sections, and in between each stanza, each one of the sections, is a refrain from a song. So actually, you're going to help me with this poem. Um, it uh, samples, I'm a DJ on the side, it samples uh, the song by a tribe called Quest, Can I Kick It? And then usually, if you do, those of you who know the song, when you hear Can I Kick It, you say, yes, you there you go. You got to do better than that. So can I kick it? Yes. Yes. There you go. All right. So this is in the voice of my daughter, Olivia. But Simone just turned one, and she's just, like, really off the hook right now. So this is called Body Stubborn Remix. My daughter learns to spin. I kick my mother's interior so hard she ripens. Tender her bruise. Name it tangerine or pear. Call it born ready to peel and eat. My lungs learn asthma fast, learn they will not outrun my brother, learn to twirl and dance, how to outsmart him with a fervor of feet, i work as hard as hands. I work 3 times harder than my age, work with one plea or cue the request, just walk baby, can i kick it? Yes, you can. can i kick it? I toddler clumsy, I reach but miss, height betrays me. I get caught and trip on try, okay, to mom, to dad. Crumple and fall, backslide. Scrape an elbow and knee, healing bubbles, then concretes into a scab, a wound, or tears. Buckle down and bear it. Grow into the scar, scar until I grow. Daddy says lotion, but I won't grace. Would rather slow sprint and sidestep. Would rather pluck cords out of hair and scratch the vinyl of my skin. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. can I kick it? Yes, you can. Don't blame my feet for this body's stubborn confidence. I form praise in the shape of long strides, tap the vowels of rock and roll. Clap to the beat, pop a door down, mix master bowleg. When the storm hits the gulf shore of my growth, when the sand crusts and beckons, tries to back me down, I tweak the gain, I go on and spin forward, I jigger, I bug until my daddy launches me into his arms. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Well, I'm gone. <laughs> there you go. That's that's how you know the true Tribe fans right there, right? So uh, Terry and I actually did a collaboration, um, a disarticulation, and, and I'll say if I can remember how we did this, uh, but it was a collaboration where we traded poems, we traded news lines, we traded some poems, and then out of the poems we traded, we had to create new poems and so on. So I'm going to read this one really quickly. It's called We Invent We, and it, is, it starts with the epigraph by Robin Cost Lewis, who writes her epigraph in Pig Latin, and I'm going to try to remember what this says. We bent English, then embraced it, then erased it, all at the same time. One, quake storm. We tell ourselves solid. We think trillions of forms. We point to shrines, invent ourselves the planet in place. We are convinced our matter holds everything we cling to. But like Yoko Ono vibrates, everything is shaking. We're really set in motion together. We're fre- frequency, all the same energy-shaking delusion and fixed mythologies. We make fervor musical. We're one giant quake, a swarm of tenacious breath. We matter. We are song. Everything is shaking. We vibrate Yoko Ono. We cling to everything. We hold the planet in place. We invent we. We trillions of forms. We ourselves solid. Two, ransack yourself where you stand. We junk piles. We dust heap. I lean into myself, hold the detritus, a late empire settled thick, Layers in us all, experience, boxed, unsorted, toppling. In the 60s, they said, in case of nuclear war, bend over, kiss your ass goodbye. But isn't that just shelter, duck, and cover? Tells me how to contain unfucked unified atrocities, tells me we can't have this place, tells me we can't find anything that used to be. Three, after acres of skin, the history of medical experiments on black prisoners, after Alan M. Hornbloom, history, science, not recorded in the usual tomes, whispered in screams across unending nights, all conducted in the name of history, science, its erasure, its curiosity, cruelty, passed down to successive generations of history, science, its pretense of objectivity, of discussion, of genes, not history, Science. When forced to stop the experiments, history, science, refused to look into the eyes. Black prisoners, no more real to history, science, than the research taken on animals. Four, sometimes noise. We, the clank machinery of thought. We, the factory of heartbeats, 24-hour shifts lit up with fire. Our noise, better than the silence piercing us like tomorrow's bad news. Our dilapidated druthers, better than faded winds with its shut down bitterness. We rather have our engines on, noise sucking the cells out of work, we, the irregular factories surrounding hillsides, and sometimes we, the rain, and sometimes we, the breath left on porches, what can cover all of that? So I'm going to read two more poems, and uh, that poem is in a book called Icon, which is here, and my name is, my full name is Frederick Douglass Brown. I'm named after the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass, and as you can imagine, if you have a famous name, uh, it's hard to live up to that, right? It's hard to live up to Douglass, but I think in this day and age, it's important, too. So, this is a poem. You know, a lot of poets in here in the house, we write portrait poems. And so uh, I decided to write an unportrait poem. This is called Unportrait of Frederick Douglass. And it starts with an epigraph by Morgan Parker. Um, and Morgan says Everyone got high levels of entitlement in our veins. I sever my name, and hell still breaks my dead father. My move away from him, not a move away from you, excuse me, let me start over. My move away from his name, not a move away from him, but from you, lion-eyed icon. What little I have earned being a Frederick. Distance from pain, leathering my back or knees, I buckle at traffic. Long lines of coffee drinkers at a cafe or the rude woman on her phone in the store so damn loud. (laughs) I am far from your anguish bending planks for white folks so they can live right, but I'm also far from the boy who grew up in the one-room matchbox. We drove out the roaches but couldn't stop the rats or San Francisco housing hikes. Public housing requests, those deadlines circled blood and scribbled prayers on calendars alongside birthdays maybe the isolated f was for fight the temperament a scared and broke boy takes on when the odds have beady eyes that scatter when the lights flick f for food fabricated out of thin boxes our church delivered to us f for food stamps and F for tacos. I know that doesn't start with F, but fucking good does. (laughs) F for freezer burn memory because I just hung up the phone with my sister and we cursed our sick mother into a fine paste. Who the F does she think she is? F for the privilege I force, fling, forge. F for forgetful. F for frequency and the lack thereof. F, for all the flavors I will miss when mom's body calls finish before she's ready, when her, when her strength no longer formidable. At this rate, I will only be able to say failure, frail, feeble, frayed, and it will mean me, not her, Not my father, and Mr. Douglas, definitely not you. I'm going to end with this poem. Uh, Many of my students are here, and we read uh, Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. You all know that poem? Such a wonderful poem, right? And it's inspired this poem. This is called What Did I Know? After Robert Hayden, thank you for spending your night here on a Friday listening to some poetry. What did I know? My father would always say, I'm illiterate, but I made sure my son got his education. And after he would straighten up, become the fluorescent lights and tea shoe shop, his first stop before returning home to cook my stepmother's dinner. His factory blood in a boil, needing the company of laughter and beer to calm him from his blue collar grind. His home, stricken with my stepmother's Alzheimer's, so much could often go missing. Meals had to be put together with the clank of Goodwill pots and pans a new set every week. Gotta do what we gotta do, son, he would say, trumping any school memberships or rites of passage. What did I know of sacrifice? Sacrifice, that napkin wiping the drool away. Sacrifice, the meal steaming up into the glasses of a spouse too sick to eat the blue-black noise from down the hall, and me bumming five bucks from my dad, my hungry hand, illiterate to the TV in the back room, comforting the silence of this meal. Thank you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let, Let, Let him hear it. How about that? All right, you guys. And now we are bringing up the fabulous and lovely, moving right along, Hannah Dowell.
9: Thank you all for being here. Um, It's such a treat to read with so many other poets. Um, So thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I thought I would start with a few poems from um, my book and then read some that are not in the book. Is this okay? I messed it up. Is that better? Yeah, I can hear that, okay. Halcyon, an origin story. After making precise measurements, a woman travels to the middle of the ocean to disassemble her ship. She tears the sail from its mast, strikes from the bottom as though cutting down a tree, lets it fall. The hull she uproots piece by piece by piece, tosses the fragments overboard. They leap like fish finding water, bob, bob and float. Nothing left to stand on, she knots the sail around her shoulders and with the pieces draws together her nest. Variations on I'm sorry. The apology I give you is shaped like an egg. When it cracks, I let it drain from hands to arms, follow my veins like the rivers they are. My apology is fast moving, knows where it's going and when it will arrive. And it arrives. My apology knows how to make an entrance. It dazzles in its fur coat and sapphires. Everyone turns their heads to look at my apology as it goes, lips slightly parted. See me mouth the words to my apology, ripe and firm. Don't be alarmed by the powder it leaves on my tongue, the bees flying in and out of my mouth. We all need something sweet, something gold and worth blossoming for. Um, This is a little bit of a different poem. Um, I think I realized recently that if you grow up Catholic, you can never stop being Catholic. Um, (laughs) No matter what you do, it's just part of you. So this poem is called Not My Day. I am at another wedding, not my own, feeling like I am as important enough to be here as the carpet's fringe, a nice addition, if pointless and occasionally in the way. I'm in a new dress, But Jesus is the only one who knows it. And not just because he saw me cut off the tags and slide it over my head this morning, but because he stares at me while everyone else looks to the altar, where the action happens, though I wouldn't call it that. For all their hype and eternal implications, ceremonies feel so uneventful. Do you mind sharing your limelight, I ask Jesus because no one but me notices him or the way his muscles thrust in chiseled pain. The priest says something about bodies, how two become one. And I imagine bride and groom joined at the hip like the plastic couple perched this very moment on their three-tier vanilla cake and the pain of being irreversible altered this way. Jesus says this wedding was his idea. He likes bringing people together likes parties and says the wedding of two bodies is pretty much the same altering thing that happens when i let him inside of me so i married jesus i should have predicted this when i first walked down that aisle he hasn't taken his eyes off me yet and it's not even my day do i think he'll make a good husband not if i'm the jealous type I don't think I'll like the way he loves everyone equally or watches every woman in the world undress before slipping into bed. Um, This poem is interesting follow-up to that one. I didn't plan this, but there you have it. Um, Mary's Guide to Divination and Fortune-Telling. This poem is in sections, and each section has a different title, which I'll try to emphasize. You Will Make Head's Turn. Perplexing that you walk at all without seeing the cavernous mouths of the people who feel themselves pass by, if not through you. Life is too short to hold grudges. I ran away from home when I was six years old, angry at my mother. I packed my baby doll and saltines to avoid hunger. When baby began to cry, I went home. If God had let a bitter child die, what kind of God would this be? One is not sleeping does not mean they are awake. You have stopped sleeping because there is too much else. You fold laundry and watch zombie movies on TV. And I stay up with you because I am afraid you are asleep behind your eyes. And in a dreamlike state, you'll remember you are human. Turn on the stove. Burn yourself. When the moment comes, take the top one. In the middle of the night, a camp counselor woke me to ask if the boy who wet his bed could share my bunk. In the morning, I saw his drooling face there remembered what mom once said about sleeping with boys. When she picked me up from camp, I cried the whole way home. (laughs) You will kiss your crush, ooh la la. Standing sideways before my bedroom mirror, I sucked in my stomach and became a sheet of paper. I thought about kissing on the mouth, forced my lips into some shape a boy might find suitable. You create enthusiasm around you. Your face might be made of plaster. You might be a floppy little doll, a doll that bends in half at the waist. This is my interpretation of what the people whisper as they look away. Soon a visitor shall delight you. I convinced myself I was pregnant and told no one. I asked myself several questions, notably if I had had sex. I thought I was a virgin, but my stomach growled and ached in unordinary ways, such that I knew there was someone else inside me. Let the Deeds Speak. If a child is anything other than parasite, I would ask my mother to speak now. As the unintended consequence of a deed, product of a uterus, I feel I must not use my mouth for anything other than apologies. Old friends make best friends. When your body is forced to invent creative ways of feeding itself, it ages. Only months since I last saw you, but you have aged years. A fetus, too, grows wrinkled in a matter of only months. Out of confusion comes new patterns. Standing sideways before my bedroom mirror, I sucked in my stomach and wondered whether the raised knoll had been conceived through my imagination, God, man, or eating for two, myself and you. When hungry, order more food. The beauty of a fork is its willingness to bend and not break. No matter how many times I allow food to pass through me, I worry it will get stuck along the way take hold grow into something God herself could not digest Um, this is a very new poem Um, I've been trying to write a poem every day in April I hope I don't think I'm the only one probably (laughs) Um, this is called Realizations While Staying in Other People's Apartments It is not difficult to imagine that we could live here together with the hanging plants, Swedish soaps, strong water pressure. At this confession, you turn toward the walls discerning arrangement of framed maps and suggest we try finding ourselves, our histories. There we are. I point to a shade of blue that could be heaven. This, a betrayal no less mundane than any of my others. What is heaven but another word for prison? The great gray mass of North America reminds me of places I think I will not travel, those which recall everything I know and do not know about you, us. The only thing I want to know right now is what use it will be after I have died to look back on the map of my life and see how many times I was near to you and did not know it, all the ways we might have saved each other. My mother tries to teach me how to pray. When I fold my hands together, I do not think of my childhood bedtime ritual, doubling my small body under yours to kneel where you were kneeling to ask the Lord that we might live another day. When I fold my hands together, I do not think of you, but of an almost lover who folded sheets of paper into birds. Dear dove, he'd say, kneeling beside me as I closed my eyes to stars and let him bend me into the poems he tucked inside his pocket. Unlike other mothers, you never asked me to close my eyes when I prayed. Even then, you must have known the fear I had, not of darkness, but of sudden light, the knowledge that everything is made to disappear. When I kneel, I think of begging for my life, I have learned to call this prayer. Um, this is the last poem that I will read for you. Um, it's sort of of a, of a sequence with the previous one I just read. Um, and the only thing you need to know about this poem is that um, I repeat the word God, and the first time it's um, God with a capital G, and then the second time with a lowercase g. So you can't hear that distinction, so I'm here to tell you about it. My mother tries to teach me about transubstantiation. I am only half listening, too busy holding my foot beneath the bathtub's faucet, pretending I have not a foot, but a mermaid's tail. I try to tell you that the water is too cold, freezing. You reach into the unexpected heat, and for the first time look at me like I am the child I am. But I hadn't been trying to tell you that cold and hot were the same. I was trying but had no words to say that the sensation of any two extremes is. That a burn is a burn, regardless of origin. Take anything, God, God. How the closer I get to belief, the more it feels like unbelief. Still, a word from you can undo me. Don't you see how the more I become myself, I become you? Do you feel it, too? Thank you.
1: Hannah Dow, you guys. Hannah Dow, that was beautiful. Okay, you guys, we have one more author, and then Douglas, Hannah, and Mike are going to come back up for a short Q&A, and then we'll sign some books. Yeah, it's all good. So you guys, right now, reading from Letters to My City is the fabulous Mike Songson. Put your hands together.
10: Man, how's everybody? Well, yeah. Hey, it's really fantastic to be here. I've been coming here since I was a teenager, and uh, they used to call it Chatterton's back in the day. Uh, man, I love Skylight, so spent a lot of money here over the years, and, and there's more to spend, right, you know? Yeah. Um, I was born in Long Beach, and a lot of my poems are geographic, futurist, map poems, Some of my poems are these catalog poems, cataloging L.A. history, but there's also a lot of mapping involved. So this is one about being born in Long Beach. This is the 562. The 562 is a nexus, a suburban-urban cross-section, a small-town, big city, affluent yet gritty. The 562 is somewhere between Hollywood and Irvine, Santa Monica and Anaheim. The 562 is a good time because its people are down-to-earth. Blessed by birth to be born where the vibes are warm. Catch that cool ocean breeze blowing in from the beach. And the clouds, they come from the south. As the coast winds around the peninsula of Palos Verdes, the temperature is perfect. This land was once marshlands and willow thickets intercepted by the L.A. River, but now surfers and grandparents kick it. The 562 is all-American multicultural folks from Iowa to Cambodia, El Salvador to Ethiopia, aviation okies in the aerospace industry, and denizens of Long Beach groove to Snoop Dogg and Sublime, garage rockers and freestyle rhyme, and on the streets of Long Beach you can find oil in Signal Hill, Broadway's alternative lifestyles, art in the East Village, downtown lofts or rockabilly chillers, and how many poly players in the NFL? From JoJo's to the Prospector, Cohiba to the Blue Cafe, drinking sangria on a hot day, the bar flies cruise from the 49er to Belmont Shore, and private parties used to get loose at the Spruce Goose. The 562 is a window into the future with lots of history, like the powerful earthquake of 33, the pike used to be the place to be, and can we salute Cameron Diaz and her flavorful family? Respect to Lakewood, Cerritos, Bellflower, Norwalk, Cudahy, Southgate, Compton, to damn near Bell Gardens. Not to be confused with the 310. This is the 562. In the middle of SoCal, but its own little world, it's another beautiful day in El Dorado Park. In the place of my birth and in the home of my heart, this is the 562. I am still alive in Los Angeles. I am still alive in Los Angeles. I'm still alive in Los Angeles even as the price of rent rises and gridlock strangles central arteries. I'm old enough to remember disco parties and the build-up to the 1984 Olympics, and news reporters like Jerry Dunphy and Hal Fishman. I remember when Fernando Valenzuela was a rookie, years before I loved Wanda Coleman and Bukowski. My first L.A. poets were Ciccern and Vince Scully. Then I read Mike Davis and Kerry McWilliams and watched the Gospel of Hugh Hauser, looking at things that aren't here anymore, recalling former glory like Ralph's story. I'm still exploring from Panorama City to Pomona. I'm still alive in Los Angeles as they build high-speed trains down Crenshaw and out into the San Gabriel Valley. Changes in transportation for the new generation foreshadow the nation's transformation as millennials on bicycles call for return of the Garden City. Green in the 21st century is a matter of survival. Witness the revival of the wetlands. The riparian watershed is a sentinel of of sustainability. Unbridled consumption is a liability. Observe residents of Angel City playing their part to restore nature's heart. I'm still alive in Los Angeles from festivals to funerals, baby showers to weddings. Each generation ever more beautiful. Reality is ever musical. Throngs of people mix and match, creating the patchwork mosaic of multicultural souls coming together to call, call L.A. home. The community is a poem in progress called Los Angeles. The angels in a city sing a synchronicity from central to century city. Olympic was 10th Street and Pio Pico was the last governor of California when it belonged to Mexico. He was born a Spanish citizen. See the city's end so into Satori on a Saturday morning, circling the Evergreen Cemetery or hiking up hills in Culver City. I'm still alive in Los Angeles as mama's laundry laundromats from Lancashire to Long Beach. Magnolia to Manchester, Rosemead to Redondo Beach. I walk the long streets even though there's no more open space. Most of the wetlands have been replaced by condos, Trader Joe's, and makeshift dog parks. The expanding corporate heart charts a frenzied facelift of never-ending Christmas, but only a few are on that wish list. There's a generation of kids on Snapchat and commuters want that fast track. Alive in Los Angeles. I'm still alive in Los Angeles. Thanks to family, friends, and poetry. The past, present, and the future of the city gives me energy. Untold generations of history from Biddy Mason to Chavez Ravine to Toyo taki, Punctuating the power of place, turning the page, sharing authority because we all share the story of the city unfolding. There's no hierarchy. It's oral her story. I'm still alive in Los Angeles. And today I drive around LA with my son and daughter like I once rode with my grandfather. There's no more Perinos or the Brown Derby, but there's still Fossilman, Coles, Philippe's in the pantry. My children spill ice cream in the back seat with me. Together we are alive in a city of destiny. I am still alive in Los Angeles. L.A. <laughs> Folks, um, many things to tell you, but um, first of all, uh, I'm really happy to be reading with my good friend F. Douglas Brown. He was with me when I wrote a lot of this. We, uh... We're both uh, teachers, dads, parents, and we're, we're both super busy, but whenever we get together, we get a couple hours and write a few poems and build, and uh, he's a great man. Um, and also, um, writers at work, I want to read a little bit. Uh, there's an essay in my book about the woman's building. And Insurgent Muse, Terry's book on city lights, was a masterpiece. And uh, I've spent, I've had some times meditating at Writers at Work, the Meditate and Write, and I always enjoy Terry. And um, I want to read a little blurb. This is in my essay, but uh, there's a friend of mine named A.K. Tony from Lamert Park, and he had a really cool thing to say about Terry. So listen to this. The Lamert Park poet A.K. Tony has known Terry Wolverton since the mid-1990s, and he's been publishing a few of her anthologies. Quote, This is AK. Terry Wolverton is a pioneer in the discipline of poetry, Tony says. No one has done more for Los Angeles poetry in the last 20 years than her. Whether she is consulting, writing, creating new forms of poetry, or conducting workshops and retreats that help poets refine their craft and get published, she is truly a heroine for the Los Angeles literary scene. A concrete example of what Tony mentions here is Wolverton's two-plus decades of holding writing workshops for writers with HIV. In the early 1990s, Wolverton helped the writer Gil Quadros find his voice and eventually publish his award-winning short, story, short stories and poetry. Though Quadros died of HIV in 1996, his 1994 City of God book is still in print and considered a masterpiece. His time with Terry Wolverton was very important. So, this book is actually more essays than poems. Um, a couple of these essays had been on the KCET website. Um, and there's, I, I love neighborhood stories. So for me, I'm really big on this idea of sharing authority that the woman who lived in a neighborhood for 50 years is a better authority than the PhD. <laughs> and you know, I mean, you know, no, no, no disrespect to PhDs. I think studying is awesome. But I think I believe in both the street knowledge and reading, you know, be out there pounding the pavement, talking to people, really living that praxis. And, and so um, in, my, in my teens and 20s, I was very influenced by the community arts movement, whether it was the Women's Building, whether it was the Watts Writers Workshop, Horace Tapscott's Pan-African People's Orchestra, um, spaces like the World Stage, Beyond Baroque. And a lot of people don't know what a community arts movement L.A. has had. Pe- people don't know that we've had some of the most incredible community artists in this city, and I was lucky enough to learn about that in my late teens and early 20s, and it really influenced me because at the same time, we were coming up in the spoken word poetry scene, but we decided that we were going to kind of unite all of these things, and I really love the community arts movement, and uh, Terry has been a major beacon of that, and um I was very influenced when I learned about the community arts. So that's just something I want to say. Um, The very first time I ever read here was in 2004, and it was with Wanda Coleman. And she signed this for me. It was actually March 13th, to Mike. um, Wanda Coleman, March 13th, 2004. And I'm always thankful for Wanda, too, because she was very nice to me when I was in my early 20s, and she didn't have to be, you know, so... She said, "A literary rapper," <laughs> and I, I never considered myself a rapper. But we had, we were reading, we were reading Langston Hughes and Walt Whitman, and we were listening to hip hop. And I was, Mike Davis was my professor, and we were doing a lot of different things. And so we were reading Wanda, and um, she was very encouraging, though she didn't have to be, you know. And that's why I'm very thankful because I met some other writers at that time that were of her stature that weren't as kind. And so now, as I've been, I've been teaching about 11 years now. I used to teach high school, and now I'm teaching at Woodbury University of Burbank. But uh, I, when I meet young writers, I try to remember how Wanda was, and I try to remember how these other, you know, so. This is called One for Wanda. Hey, Wanda, one of the last moves Austin made before he split the planet, make sure the I Scott branch of the Los Angeles Public Library was dedicated to you. Remember the library you ran to when you needed a place to escape so long ago? Dozens of your books are now on the shelf below a framed copy of your Los Angeles Times obituary. A dozen feet from your section, four tables are set aside as a student zone for homework help. Black and brown teens huddle in a circle completing worksheets while a young woman explains equations. A seventh grade boy chases his younger brother while their mother reads a magazine. In 1957, you chased your dream to be a published author sitting in these chairs. The librarian can no longer admonish you for staying late. Your dream walks down Maine along San Pedro through Florence Firestone, set off a landslide of poems bearing witness to African sleeping sickness. Apply the mercuria chrome, a young girl sleeps in her mother's arms. The California condor are gone, but your books remain stacked on the west wall. Hear the footfalls from the children down the hall. You were a native in a strange land. You drank a lifetime of bathwater wine. Morning after morning, there wasn't a pill you didn't swallow. You were in touch beyond cliche, erasing all of the names of the betrayers. Your crowning glory on the page, channeling blues beyond Broadway. A chorus of cosmic American sonnets broadcasting honest truth. You asked who will sing your praise song. I assure you, we are many. Your resurrection reverberates through the firmament. We will never forget you, Wanda. Miss Coleman, you put our city on the map. You made history. Without you, this city is pale, rude fiction. I drove to Florence in Maine to say your name. After visiting your library, I cruised down San Pedro past Fremont High School. You said, it's insanity writing poetry in Los Angeles. Yes, this is true. But something significant has happened here. You liberated a generation of bards, sending us down boulevards and avenues to los- locate the landscape vernacular. Poetry alone cannot contain your gravitas. Driving down Avalon up to 76th Street near your childhood home, I feel the mercury burning this late afternoon. I remember your flamethrower cocktail of kindness, your uncompromising vision. Without you, this city is pale, rude fiction. I have this uh, ongoing project of cataloging Literary LA, and so far it's been five poems. And every time I think I'm done, there's a bunch more to do. And I set myself up for some trouble because I wrote this list poem of LA women writers. And it kept growing. Every time I thought I was done, there was like three more that I needed to mention. And the whole poem is over 800 words. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to do a little piece of it right now. Um, But this is called an ode to LA women writers. Let it be known that this place is L.A. Here the women attain supreme enlightenment. Here the women turn the Dharma wheel. Here the women make the city heal. For over a century, L.A. women writers have made the city lighter. Our pacifist freedom fighters, evoke awakening, patience, generosity, mercy, and compassion like only a woman can. Forget the natural disasters. L.A. women writers are the masters of this ecology, the authorities of civic psychology, forecasting the future of L.A. reality. Though a fantasy Spanish heritage was concocted by Helen Hunt Jackson's Ramona, oppositional intellectual women writers set the LA story right one narrative at a time. Lemert Park to Boyle Heights, a little Tokyo cafe on Tuesday nights, Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Marjorie Light, T. K. Lee, Naomi Hirahara, Irene Soriano, Amy Umatsu, Karen Tayamashita, Karen Ishizaka publishing in Ghidra. LA women writers at Avenue 50 in the Women's Center for Creative Work exchanging culture at the Kaleidoscope Collective, propose manuscripts of women who submit, sharpen their focus with La Luna Locus, fight gentrification with Ovarian psychos, pioneers of community-based public history, redefine the city space with the power of place, map unsolved mysteries with the studio of Southern California Histories. L.A. women writers sleep with the dictionary like Harriet Mullen. L.A. women writers write themselves into the story like Octavia Butler, the parable of the sower, restructuring architecture of the void like Esther McCoy. Traveled from Hollywood to Watts with Wanda Coleman, more than the unofficial poet laureate, beyond Bukowski's sister. There was no one more honest. Check her American sonnets. Jane Cortez pioneered the black arts movement. She grew up in Watts and attended Compton College. Now Compton native poet laureate Robin Cost Lewis carries Cortez's knowledge in a voyage of the sable Venus. LA women writers represent East Los Angeles with postmodern prose like Helena, Marina, Vera, Montez. The movement is upon us. Behold, behold our divine healers of the word, regenerating LA's spiritual well with poems, plays, short stories, novels. LA women scribes have created a city of their own, rooted in prose and poems. Let it be known. LA women writers dream a literary life like Carolyn C. Dana Johnson connects Inglewood to Merino Valley. Redefine LA Noir with Nina Revoir. Take a drive to Crenshaw fifty fourth with Pam Ward. Head to North Long Beach with Liz Gonzalez. See Poetry's Heart with S. Pearl Sharp. Watch Michelle Clinton decipher good sense from the faithless. Attend a poetry festival started by Suzanne Lummis. Get Schooled on Topics by Jen Hoffer. Rock Bilingual Poetry Workshops with Gloria Alvarez. Start movements over and over again like Terry Wolverton. There was no glass ceiling at the woman's building. Only a city of feeling with Lois Klein-Healy. Laurel Ann Bogan sings Psychos in the Produce Department. Take a drive with Juniper Song and Steph Chaw. Let it be known that this place is LA, where Michelle Cerros inspired a generation of Chicanas. Reunite with the elders via Ophelia Esparza. Ride the rails with Maricela Norte. Ride, roll with Lionel George from Evergreen to Culver City. Hike all the way up with Teresa Mecha, Get your roots and wings with Jesse Bliss. Let Lisa C transport you on Gold Mountain. Joan Didion to Aaron Aubrey Kaplan. Patty Morrison and Denise Hamilton. Elena Karina Byrne to Carolina Miranda. Wendy Ortiz to Kate Braverman. Central Avenue Neon with Natasha Dion. Conscious Chain Reactions with Ashoky Jackson. Explore the cosmos with Rocio Carlos. Visit Southeast L.A. County with Vicky Vertiz. Manifest Magic Unplanned with Iris DeAnda. Keep keep the word soaring with Gina Loring. Let it be known that this place is L.A. Hear the women attain supreme enlightenment. Hear the women turn the Dharma wheel. Hear the women make the city heal. And this poem is trouble because it will never be complete. It can never be, for any names you don't see, shout them out, let it be known, let it be known, write your own poem, let it be known that this place is LA, here the women attain supreme enlightenment, here the women turn the Dharma wheel, here the women make the city heal. Thank you. Wow,
1: Mike Thompson, wow, that was fantastic, amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, his book is available at the front, you guys. But right now, we're going to bring back Hannah, and, 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 uh, and uh, Douglas is coming over, and Mike's coming back. And for a quick Q&A, we only have about 10 minutes. So if you have a question for these guys, please uh, uh, direct it to either Hannah or Douglas or Mike. Okay? Any questions? Come on up, guys. Answer.
0: Last summer, we were both, so we both were published by The Accomplices or Writ Large Press, um, and so we were both kind of finishing books for them at the same time. There are uh, a few instances we wrote poems together, um, but we went to La Monarca and South Pass uh, pretty much every day, and, uh, and and by the luck of it all, uh, and a lot of hard work, uh, and a lot of coffee. Um, <laughs> We got it together but it's good you know to go with someone to 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 push one another and and, you know if there was a a direction i needed or i needed a quick edit and vice versa mike was there uh, and i was there for him so it was really helpful um we both were we go to the huntington Uh, we both at the time had passes to go to the huntington and do some research uh, if you're a writer, you should definitely apply to the Huntington Library to get access to it. And then sometimes in the Huntington we get lost a lot, like in the books <laughs> rather, not not so much just like direction-wise, but just lost in it. And then we forget to write, so we stop going to the Huntington. <laughs> <laughs>
10: uh, several of Doug's students came here tonight. Um, In my next life, I'll be as great of an English teacher as this man, too. you got to see this man in the classroom. Um, Doug is a fantastic... Let's clap for that, man. Um, So sometimes we'll workshop poems, but a lot of it is just a conversation and camaraderie. And and sometimes we're talking the whole time, and sometimes we'll just write, 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 write. And um, it is good to have a writing partner. And uh, I used to be able to write at home, and I used to be able to write at night. But now I'm, like, waking up when I used to, you know, stay up. So. <laughs> Well, I'm always reading I'm always some of the time writing is just taking notes of what I'm reading. you know i always try- I try to even read more than I write um as much as I can, but I do like the daily ritual. I do do five haiku a day, and my philosophy is even if half of them suck at the end of the year, you got a few hundred haiku so <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs>
0: um I think for me, what gets me down to write is, uh, even though the way I grew up, you know, was pretty destitute and poor, I think I live a pretty privileged life. And I have obligation to give back to the people who made sure I was able to be educated. And so that's what brings me to the table a lot of the times, and to to speak for somebody and to speak with somebody who doesn't have an opportunity. And and that might be my kids, that might be, (laughs) <laughs> now they're older and they have opportunity and uh, <laughs> you should see their work um but it might be my students it might be you know someone in the world i will never meet you know um and that's important for me you know that's what keeps pushing me uh to do it and to do it right and uh that is beyond me so
9: um, now i'm short <laughs> Um, I think I most of my writing life has been um, writing for deadlines, yeah. as unromantic as that is. Um, but I've recently, I think, come around to have writing because I have to write um, writing because there's I, I can't think of anything else to do. Um not not like because I'm bored, but just because I, there's like there's nothing else. Um <laughs> I don't know how to say that nicely. Um and I think in terms of maybe subject matter, what's interesting me right now is um and maybe this came across in what I read from my book and then what I read from not my book. My uh, writing has become increasingly more personal to me. I've been writing more about family, um, and that is a scary thing, but I feel like it's a thing that needs to be done, so...
0: Um, I do have to definitely do it longhand every time, which delays a lot. (laughs) uh, It's a slow process. Um, I recently changed my process for this recent book, Icon, because uh, uh, it entailed so much research. And so it was hard for me to write because um, a lot of the poems have to deal with ephrasis. Me looking at a picture by the the painter, the uh, Harlem Renaissance painter, Jacob Lawrence. And a lot of the writing I was doing was very much like an essay. And a lot of the reading I was doing were, were all essays. And so it was difficult to to switch that to a poem. And so uh, I took a workshop with the poet, Kamiko Han. And Kamiko is known for doing this thing called zuhitsu, uh, which I've taught my students how to do. I, I'm saying this because I let them know that I practice what I preach. Um, and the zuhitsu is the idea of writing randomly. And it was really helpful to read and to make categories, and to read randomly, too. So uh, to take notes, rather, randomly. And that really helped start to break the things that I was reading already into a poem. And it started to take shape a lot faster than just me reading something, and then taking notes, and then trying to find a poem in that. Um, Recently, I've been writing about my mother who passed away last year, and a lot of it comes so fast that I'm actually starting to write it on my phone and then email it to myself. So that, that feels kind of weird. Um, so I have to print it out and still have to write it in between the lines. But uh, at least the words are coming. So
9: um, My process is pretty different. I only write on my laptop. Um and I revise a lot while I'm writing. Like I can't. I'm, I'm kind of obsessive when I write a draft of a poem. I can't stand up until I've completed something that I feel comfortable walking away from. So that can take a while, and I have to carve out some time for that, which maybe is a little bit of a, a hurdle right now. Um, but it's. <laughs> I don't write by hand at all. I can't. I can't see all my mistakes like that. <laughs> I will write things down, but um, (laughs) it doesn't happen. I don't, I don't get inspired, uh, I guess.
10: (laughs) (laughs) I'm similar to Doug where I'm pretty analog. I like vinyl records and I like writing in notebooks and my good buddy Terry knows too. We have a million notebooks. He got a million little notebooks and I like those little notebooks uh, I know Jack Kerouac did this too where the small page the short page would make just a little short piece and so kind of in that Mexico City blues tradition um, but I always liked the notebooks. And then take it. Then you take it to the laptop later on, or you take it. You know, you take it to the computer. But the the hand writing it out by hand is a nice starting place. And we used to like write poems on the bus or write poems cruising around. At UCLA, I probably spent more time out on the quad than in class, and just writing writing poems. People walking by, people watching, and I very much like the the flaneer or you know that idea that I, of looking at the city. Um, but writing out by hand, yeah. I lived my entire life in LA County. Yeah, I've never, I've never lived anywhere
0: else. He's third generation, right? yeah. I, I'm new to LA. I mean, relatively new. I've been here eleven years, which I still think is new. Um, it's weird. I used, to, you know, I'm now ready to go to a bookstore where it says "LA Writer" and look for my book there. But before, I'm from San Francisco. So I'm very like territorial, and I'm like I don't care if my book's not in there. But now, I think this is my home, and and you know you live in a place and you ingest so much of that place, and and everyone I hang out with is like Mike, you know, second or third generation Angelino, and I love that. I love that about it. My phone number has a two one three prefix. I love that. <laughs> you know, I'm old school, even you know, and so. Um, in addition to, like, I'm really, I think the next workshop I do, I'm, I'm, I'm designing a workshop about place and hanging out with Mike, you know, everywhere we go, it's like a tour, you know, and Mike will give you a rundown, and, uh, like, sometimes, like, Mike has been on his tour giving his book, and so, like, I kind of missed that, and now I'm thinking about my own home, now I'm away from it, in a way to, to be kind of a tourist there and, and see what I know, so lends itself for good poetry you know I hope.
9: Well you've outed me because I don't live in LA and I don't know how I snuck in. (laughs) Sorry to let you down. I live in Orange County but I actually yeah (laughs) Um, I did live in LA for a couple of years a few years ago so it was home once. Two years, though. That's it. I have no claim. All right, you
1: guys. Big round of applause for these guys. Douglas Brown. Oh, my gosh. Hannah Dow, Mike Songson. Buy the books in the front. Come on back, and we'll sign them back.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.